Amen. Amen, amen. God gave the church a colossal mission. But God also gave the church a more colossal and even more colossal power or a more colossal means to accomplish that mission. A couple years ago, I, uh, my, my lawnmower broke and uh, we had a friend who said, oh, I got, a, I got an old lawnmower, I can give it to you. And I said, great. So he gave me this old lawnmower, it was a real blessing. And I, and I pulled it out and I started using it and I just noticed it, it was really heavy. It was just kind of cumbersome and sort of difficult. And, and I was really thankful, you know, for the lawn, free lawnmower, but I'm just, man, this lawnmower is just like really bulky and uh, really just hard to push. And, and I kind of wrestled with it for like two or three different times mowing the lawn, you know. And then finally one day I was, I was pushing the lawnmower and, and I looked over and I saw this little lever on the side. And I was like, I wonder what that is. Yeah, whatever, keep pushing, you know, and then kind of kept thinking about it. Like, maybe it's like the throttle or something, you know. Maybe I'll, uh, you know, uh, all you guys are judging me right now, I know. But uh, I was like, oh, there's a little picture of a turtle and a little picture of a rabbit. I wonder, I wonder what that is. Now, um, there really was, actually. Uh, so I, so I, I turned it up, and the lawnmower started to push itself. It was incredible. I didn't even know such a thing existed. I mean, apparently I was raised in the dark ages, I don't know, but apparently there's such a thing as a self-propelled lawnmower. It was just an incredible reality. And then all of a sudden, this thing became very easy to push. Uh, so what's my point? Uh, ministry, doing this thing called ministry, this thing that all of us as saints are called to do, it's hard, it's heavy, it's cumbersome, it's hard to push sometimes. I mean, when you're dealing with human beings... It's hard, it's hurtful, it's painful. Life change is one of the hardest things to see happen in this world. And uh, when you're doing it on your own strength, it's really laborious. But the good news, the primary thing I want to kind of say this morning is that God has given us um, not only a ministry, he's given us the means to do that ministry. He's given us a particular power in order to do this particular commission that he's given us to do. And when you figure that out, it's a game changer. It's a total game changer. We're in a, a series right now, just a five-week series. If you're joining us, typically what we do is we just teach through books of the Bible. Um, but we, we, we pause for five weeks just to really think about the subject of the Holy Spirit. Uh, a subject that I think there's a lot of confusion about and a lot of misunderstanding. Um, a subject that, that we felt was very important for our church, um, not only here on Sundays to focus on, but in, in our small gatherings that we uh, set up for about six weeks as well. And so uh, we've, been, we've been chewing on that, chewing our way through that. And here's kind of where we've been so far. The, the first week we talked about who the Holy Spirit is. We tried to define who the Holy Spirit is. And we, we found out that the Holy Spirit is not a force. Okay, he's not a tube to be squeezed. Uh, the Holy Spirit is, in fact, a person, and he has a will, and he has a mind, and, and he has um, thoughts, and that person is actually a member of the Trinity, so the Holy Spirit is God. He is a, a person who we are to interact with. We can grieve him. He has a desire. It's the Spirit of God. It's the third person of the Trinity. So we, we, we realized that. And then we, we switched over and we started thinking about uh, what does the Holy Spirit do to us? What kind of ministry does the Holy Spirit do to us? And first we realized that the Holy Spirit is the one that actually brings us into Christ at salvation. That when we get saved, the Spirit actually unites us, becomes the bonding agent to the work, the person and work of Jesus. The Holy Spirit applies the blood to us, gives us the credit to Jesus' righteousness to our account, and literally moves us positionally into Christ. 
Pretty cool. And then last week, Pastor Ryan uh, helped us understand what the Holy Spirit does in our maturation or our sanctification. This uh, this fact that the Holy Spirit actually grows us. He doesn't just birth new life in us. He raises us. He raises that that life to maturity. The Holy Spirit is doing all of these things. He's this active agent in our life. And now today we're going to look at our, our kind of our third topic, which is not just the Holy Spirit in us, but the Holy Spirit through us. In, in terms of what the Holy Spirit's role is in our ministry, in our, in our outpouring, our outflow back into the body and out into the world. And that's what we're going to start talking about today. Now, next week will be the second part of this, and, and next week we're going to focus a lot more on the spiritual gifts and, and, and kind of what those look like and how we operate in, in those. But today I just want to sort of set the table, and I want to try to make some very basic assertions that you might already agree with, but I just feel that, that we need to really clarify them. So if you have a handout, if you, if you don't, there's some at the back of the room. Um, you can follow along with my outline, and there's some discussion questions for your small groups this week uh, that you can look at as well. But I'm going to make three assertions this morning. Three assertions. The first thing I'm going to assert is that you need to know that Jesus gave you dynamic power to accomplish his mission. The second thing I'm going to assert is that you should... Seek to be filled with that dynamic power every day. And then the third thing we're going to talk about is I'm going to say you should be discerning in how you think about the power of the Spirit. So that's kind of where we're going. That's where we're headed if you want to follow along in that outline. So first, I want to start by making, simply making the point that you uh, need to know Jesus gave you dynamic power. If you're a believer, if you're in the body of Christ, he gave you dynamic power to accomplish his mission. So let's, let's start there. Now, we need to define what we mean by the mission. What is the mission of God? God gave, Jesus gave his church a mission. He didn't save you so that you could just have warm fuzzies and and know that you're saved and sort of just wait around for him to come back and and take us to heaven. That's not why you were saved. That's not why you were left here, I should say. Have you ever wondered that? Like, why didn't Jesus just take me home the second I got saved? I mean, I get him waiting around for people to, to come into the kingdom so that none should perish, right? But, but once I came into the kingdom, Jesus, why don't you just take me home? Why did you leave me here? And the, the answer, one of the answers to that question is, Jesus has stuff for you to do. It, you know, the Christian life is, is not earned by doing, but the Christian life has a lot of doing in it. Jesus left you here. Jesus saved you uh, in part so that you could accomplish and finish the mission that he began when he was here in his life and his ministry. So he gave us a mission, and I want to stop, and I want to examine that mission, and I want, to see, I want you to see how hard this mission really is that we're all on. And a lot of people ask a lot of times, because we're a church plant, you know, they're like, well, what are you doing? What's your vision? And I'm like, the, the one Jesus gave us. They're like, oh, well, what makes you different than all the others? I mean, nothing. We're either doing what he said to do or not. Yeah. Well, why do we need another church in town? Because there's a lot of people going to hell, and there's a lot of work to do. Well, why shouldn't I go to the church down the road? I'm like, go. I don't know. There's, there's 33,000 people in Grants Pass going to hell. I don't think the mission, I, I think the mission needs more people doing it, don't you think? Right? So what is the mission? What's the thing Jesus gave us to do? Let's, let's look at it. And this is where we're going to find ourselves in Matthew 28, verse 16. You know, Jesus loves to give us things that we can only do with his help. Have you noticed that? 
He loves to give us things that, that are impossible in our own agency to do. And this is exactly one of those things. So in Matthew 28, verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples, that is the twelve minus Judas, and this is after the cross, this is after the resurrection, this is at the end of Matthew's gospel, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Notice, but some doubted. So Matthew here is saying that Jesus set up a meeting. He wants to have a meeting with his guys uh, on a mountain in Galilee. Uh, we don't know exactly which one, but in, in Galilee, he wants to have a meeting with them because he wants to give them their marching orders before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And Matthew lets us know here that, that some of them were, were sort of in awe of this resurrected Jesus, the one that they just saw hung on a cross and now he's alive and they're worshiping, but others are still doubting. So what does that tell us? It tells us that all the disciples are not quite on the same page yet. They're not all quite fully like firing on all cylinders, right? They're not all quite like all dialed in on, on what's going on here. Now, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is, to the end of this age that we are still in. This is known famously as what? The Great Commission. You can fill that in if you want on your, on your handout. This is the Great Commission. Well, why do we call it the Great Commission? Well, first of all, it's great because it's a huge mission. Think about it. Okay, this is global in scope. He doesn't say go into all Israel or all Palestine. He says go into all nations, the whole world, and make what? Not converts. Did you know the Great Commission is not to make converts? That's part of it. But to make what? Disciples. Have you ever tried to make one? It's hard. It's really hard. Well, what's a disciple? Well, I think what Jesus is implying there is go and do for others what I have done for you. Go and, go and find people that you can instruct and teach and, and give the gospel to and show how to walk in God's ways and in God's word. Uh, well, the, if, you, if you take the example Jesus said of discipleship, that's pretty intense. I mean, these guys spend every day with Jesus for three years. So Jesus is saying, hey, this really laborious, like labor-intensive, really hard and crazy thing that I've been doing for you, now you need to go do it on a global level whole world. That's crazy. This, this mission is, it's holistic in its approach. It's not just, hey, just go get people to sign on to this thing, or hey, just go get a bunch of people in a room. That's easy. He's saying, hey, go teach people how to live out my truth. That's hard to do. Gathering a crowd is one thing. Seeing life change is entirely different, right? We shouldn't be impressed by crowds, we should be impressed by life change because that's what the, the gospel is actually hardwired to do, see people's lives change. So Jesus is saying, go change people's lives on a global level, make it happen. This is a big mission. It's a big mission. And, and yet, we still have some of the disciples that aren't even sure if they believe Jesus is resurrected yet. I, I mean, are these guys up to it? Have you read the gospels? Have you seen some of the dumb things they did? Some of the dumb stuff Peter said and thought, 
Are these guys really? I mean, think about the likelihood of this mission, this global agenda that Jesus has. Think about the likelihood of this happening. First of all, Jesus, who's the catalyst of the whole movement, is going to leave. That's a terrible idea, right? Like what founder of any kind of movement is like, all right, I got 11 unqualified guys that aren't even sure if, I really, if they really believe this. I'm out of here. That's just a bad idea. You got Judaism, which is systematically against this thing. They just put Jesus on the cross for crying out loud. You got Rome that is basically in control of the whole deal and not in any way sympathetic to this idea of, of, of a new brand of Judaism coming out. You got 11 guys that are really not technically qualified for this kind of a thing. You know, they're, they're laymen. They're, they're fishermen, they're, they're, they're businessmen, they, they were probably, they knew some scripture, but they weren't Pharisee level, they weren't, they weren't trained for this. What's the likelihood? And Jesus has given them this impossible task. Go change the world. Go transform the whole globe through discipleship, this long, laborious process of life change. How are they going to do this? I want you to notice by the way, that Jesus bookends the Great Commission with two pieces of really good news. Do you see it? The first is, he, he, he starts it by mentioning his preeminence. He says, all authority on heaven, or in heaven and in earth, is mine. He doesn't say it's theirs, he says it's his. Okay. Now you might be saying, no, wait, didn't Jesus have all authority before he came to the world? Um, yes, he did, but not all authority over a redeemed world. He had all holy, sovereign authority over a created world, but now Jesus just bought that world through his blood. And now he's going to rule a redeemed and soon to be recreated world. So Jesus is like, hey guys, I'm in charge. Okay, first of all, I'm in charge of everything. Now, go do this crazy mission. And then he bookends it on the back end, not only with his preeminence, but with his what? His presence. And I'm going to be with you the whole time. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you might go, how? Because, like, in a couple days, he floats away in a cloud on top of Mount, on the Mount of Olives. Like, where, where, how is he here? But Jesus seems to be adamant that he is going to be present with them, that he's going to be there to accomplish this mission that he's just given them. He's not abandoning them. So let's, let's move on now and let's ask the question, how does Jesus deliver on this promise that he is going to be with them? How does he get them equipped for this mission? Why don't you turn over now to Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Let's talk about the means of this mission. Dr. Luke opens up this book. It's his second volume in his two-volume series on the work of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 1, and the first book, that's Luke, O Theophilus, that's the one he's writing us to, I have dealt with all that Jesus, what? Began to do and teach. In other words, the book of Acts is not after Jesus did stuff, it's Jesus still doing stuff. And today, actually, Jesus is still doing stuff, which is pretty cool. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during, or during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God, Jesus' favorite topic. 
So here, Jesus or uh, um, Luke is just sort of giving us a timeline of events. What happened was Jesus went to the cross, and after the cross, he was in the grave. He came out of the grave, was resurrected, and then for 40 days, he appeared to the disciples and many others. Okay, for, for 40 days. And he didn't just appear, he instructed, he taught, he declared the kingdom of God and he helped unpack for them everything that happened in the, the resurrection, in the crucifixion. He, he, you ever wonder where the apostles got all this stuff? They got it from Jesus. I mean, he unpacked this stuff for them. Okay, for 40 days. And so that's, that's kind of the timeline. And then uh, Jesus has a very important thing that he needs them to grasp before he leaves and goes back to heaven um, at the right hand of the Father. And we see this in verse four. While staying with them, listen, he suggested to them, is that what it says? Good job, River, gold star. (laughs) He ordered them, ordered. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, I already made my point, but Jesus isn't suggesting this, is he? He's demanding. He's saying, hey, don't even think about starting my mission until you have my means. Don't even think about doing this thing until you have the right power for it. Okay, and, and, and rightly so, because on its face, I can't imagine how the Great Commission would be pulled off by these guys alone. But Jesus is saying there's a catalyst coming. There, there's, a, there's something that's going to change. You ever read the New Testament, and you see the disciples in the Gospels, and then you see them in the book of Acts, and you're like, these are like different guys. They are. What, what changed? Well, we'll see. God, God gave the resource for his mission. He gave the resource for his mission. Verse six, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, don't don't reach too far into the future. I got something going on right now. There's something happening in this moment, in this dispensation, in this economy. He says, but you will, listen, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. Like, think of concentric circles. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then what? The ends of the earth. Consequently, that's the outline of the book of Acts. If you ever want to read the book of Acts, that's how exactly how it happens. They start in Jerusalem, the gospel explodes in concentric circles out from there, all across the world, all the way to Rome, where we find Paul at the end of the book of Acts. Verse 9, and when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up in a cloud, took him out of their sight. And I love this. And, and while they were gazing into heaven, like, that's what you'd be doing too. As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, you know what I'm saying? Like he's, they're tapping, like they're just, hold on, uh, we're watching. <laughs> Two men like, uh, over here in white robes. And said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken, or who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In the book of Revelation, how does Jesus return? He's coming on the clouds, right? 
How was he prophesied that he would turn? He'd come on the clouds. So here's what I want you to see here. Jesus says, right before he goes away, right before he ascends to the right hand of the Father in order to take his seat at the right hand of power, all authority, heaven and earth, he says, I am going to send you power. Now I want you to note that word power. It's the Greek word dynamis. You can write it down, D-Y-N-A-M-I-S, dynamis. He says, I'm going to send power. Now, you may have heard before that that word power is, shares a root word with dynamite. And I think that's true. But the problem with that is you think dynamite, you think, oh man, God's going to send this like messy, explosive demolition. Like we're just going to be, we're going to be like knocking buildings over in Jesus' name, right? You just think it's going to be, it's going to blow up. Well, there's a sense in which that's true. But actually, um, my friend Rick Boya helped me understand that this, this word dynamis actually is better translated dynamic. It shares a root word more specifically with dynamic, meaning I'm going to give you a dynamic ability to what? To be my witness, not just to manifest power for the sake of power, not to just create amazing supernatural things. No, I'm going to give you dynamic ability so that you can be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the earth. That means that when the Spirit comes, we will have this effective, compelling, three-dimensional, strategic, winsome, catalytic, deep, and moving ability to portray and to preach and to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world and to one another. The Spirit of God is dynamic. And when he comes, that's exactly what we see happen in the disciples. Now, what happens immediately after this? Peter, fisherman, gets up and preaches a dynamic sermon. And then what happens? Thousands of people get saved. The power of the gospel is unleashed. Okay? As, as we'll, we'll see, that, that, that happens at Pentecost. So we're given this, di- this promise of a dynamic power, and the disciples are never the same. But again, we're, we're called to be witnesses. Not to witness, but to be witnesses of the resurrection. That's what we're called to be as Christians. Now, skip over to Acts chapter 2, and let's see when this power shows up. Now, you're familiar probably with this scene. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. You just imagine, like, what did they think was going to happen, you know? What did they think, what were they waiting for? What did they think they were waiting for? Did they even have a clue? Did they even have any clarity? What, what kind of, what this power was going to look like? But they're all together in one place. And suddenly, in verse 2, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing ruach, a mighty rushing wind. The breath of God, right? And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The word wind there is literally breath. It's the same idea that happened in Genesis when God created man and then he breathed his spirit, ruach, into man. God has invested some of himself into this this materiality of man and he's given him life. This is a new Genesis moment. Jesus is a new Adam and God is now newly breathing his spirit into humanity in a new and a fresh way. Isn't that incredible? New breath, new life is coming. God is animating this moment. He's, he, this is a, literally a new Genesis. Remember what the, 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 the cultural mandate was in the book of Genesis? God made Adam and he made Eve and he said, go fill the earth 
with image bearers. Go cultivate the earth. This moment right here is the spirit of God animating an entirely new cultural mandate. Except this time, instead of fill the earth and make babies, it's go make disciples. Go make spiritual children. Go fill the earth with image-bearing, God-glorifying people, disciples. God is breathing his life into this moment, in this very moment. And I need you to stop and consider this precedent that's being set here, this paradigm-breaking reality that's being set here. Where did the Spirit of God typically fall and rest in the Old Testament? Where? Temple. Tabernacle. Who, who, was the one, who were the ones responsible for, for, for sort of being, uh, facilitating that? Priests, prophets, kings, this, this, these divine offices. Here we find some fishermen, some businessmen in a house, and the Spirit of God is filling it. This is an entirely new precedent. This is the fulfillment of Joel. Sam Storms calls it the the democratizing of the Holy Spirit, meaning now we are a kingdom of priests, all believers now. A a kingdom of priests, meaning we all have this ability to minister. We all have this ability to, to at any point experience the power of the Holy Spirit being manifest. Here they are in an upper room, and the Spirit of God is breathing in a fresh way. It's an incredible thing. In verse 3, divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Again, it's not just Peter. It's not just specific persons. All of them, all of them are receiving this power of the Holy Spirit. And I think this fire, this tongues of fire, I think this is what John the Baptist was talking about when he said there's one coming who's going to baptize you in the Spirit and what? Fire. I think this is the fulfillment of that. And fire represents purity. It represents God's ferocity. And I don't know if this is really true or not, but I was just thinking about the burning bush. Could it refer to revelation? When God appeared and revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, is this drawing our minds back to that? I don't know. But God is showing up. And what does he do when he shows up? He speaks. Because what do we see immediately? As soon as this Tongues of fire rests on these individuals. In verse 4, we see they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, these are not heavenly languages. What are they? They're real languages. How do we know that? Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. This is during a feast. So Jews would have come from all over the place for this feast, this Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Weeks. Devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. So it's like there's a sound of the wind coming. Somehow everyone noticed it because these guys are just in a room. All of a sudden, everybody that's around in Jerusalem for this feast, they start to come and check out what's going on. All these different people with all these different dialects and all these different languages, the diaspora, all these Jews that are spread all over the place. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking from Grants Pass? <laughs> oh, I meant to say Cave Junction. I didn't mean to insult you. I'm sorry. Are, are not these guys from Murphy? These guys aren't. Who are these guys? They've got to be drunk, right? <laughs> Which is, I grew up in Wairika, and anytime I do anything you know, good, people are like, you must be drunk because you're from Eureka, right? They're they're like, who are these Galileans? Who who do they think they are? What's going on? And how is it that we hear each one of us, or how is it that we hear each of us his own native language? So this is not um, random languages they can't understand. This is clarity. This is dynamics. See? 
The gospel is being spoken now in a dynamic and contextual way, in a language that these guys don't even know, so that everybody there can understand exactly what's being said. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. Of course, you know, later Peter goes, it's, it's like 10 o'clock. <laughs> no, we're not. It's the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit has come, and now the gospel is being unleashed on the world in a new and fresh way. This is a really incredible moment. There's a lot I could say here. Um, you know, we could talk about how this is the antithesis of Babel. Remember Babel? God confused the languages. It was this kind of archetype of, of man's human system, and God said, yeah, that's not going to happen. Well, now we have the opposite happening. God is bringing back together one language. God is bringing back together um, connectivity between all different nations here because he's starting a new kingdom. His new kingdom is breaking in. Now, I need, you, I need you to understand that this moment of Pentecost where the Spirit of God is being poured out, this is not about salvation. Do you understand that? These guys were already saved. I think they were already born again. I think they were already regenerated. This is not about salvation. This is about power for ministry. This is about the Spirit of God coming in a fresh way in an entirely new age, an age that we're still in where the Spirit of God is now working in a particular way because of what Jesus has done on the cross and on the resurrection, because all authority is him, or all authority is his. So the purpose, I need you to see this, the purpose for the dynamic power is not so you can have warm fuzzies, it's for the gospel to be unleashed so that the kingdom of God can break into this world and the mission of Christ can be accomplished for the glory of the Father. So the Spirit came Yes, as Ryan said last week, to sanctify us and to comfort us and to help us and to guide us, but also to get something done, something that Jesus came to start. And we are his body finishing that work. The power of the Spirit works through the seed of the gospel. Sam, what's the gospel? That's my favorite question. The gospel is news. It's not something we do. It's not something we create. It's something that happened already. It's a reality that exists. It's something you simply unleash when you speak it, when you declare it. When you speak that Jesus has accomplished this salvation and is accomplishing this salvation, there's power in that. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the, listen, it's the dynamis, same word, look it up. It's the power, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God. The Spirit comes to release and unleash the gospel so that it can transform people's lives from the inside out. And that's what happens. If, you, if you've been uh, saved here, you're following Jesus, the gospel at one point, like a seed, it was planted in your heart, nourished by the Holy Spirit, and now it's beginning to overtake your entire life from the inside out. That's why you're not the same person now. That's why you can't keep sinning the way you used to. Because the gospel is literally bursting out of you, all your pores. The gospel life, the resurrection life of Jesus is overtaking your life. The Holy Spirit is in the business through the church of bringing dynamic power through the gospel, the release of the gospel. 
so that we can be saved and be part of the kingdom of God. Isn't that cool? Is anybody else excited about that? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, cool. I just want to make sure you guys are awake. Um, so my point is simply this. God gave you what you need to do what he asked you to do. He gave you what you need. Now, let me move to my second assertion here. If you're following along, it took way too long on that first one. You should, number two, you should seek to be filled with the dynamic power of the Spirit. I, I firmly believe that. You should seek to be filled with that. But I need to give some, some, some dimension to that a little bit. First of all, let me explain something. When I say you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you're a Christian, you can, you can be a Christian and not be filled with the Holy Spirit in terms of God's presence abiding in you. I'm not saying that at all. When you get saved, the Spirit of God lives within you. I'm not talking about presence. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about power. I'm not saying that you can be saved and not be filled with the Holy Spirit in terms of God indwelling you, in terms of salvation. I am saying that we should seek to continually be filled by the Spirit for ministry. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that there is some kind of second baptism out there that you need to go and achieve. I don't believe that. I am saying, however, that the Spirit of God is waiting and ready to fill in particular ways at particular times you to do certain things that God wants to do through you. He wants to give you the power that you need when you need it to do the ministry that he's commissioned you to do. Where am I getting this? Let me give you a couple passages. Galatians 5, you can turn there if you're real quick. Uh, Galatians 5, 25 says, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, and I think that means if you've been born of the Spirit, which we talked about two weeks ago, if you've been born again, okay, if you've been born of the Spirit, if you live by the Spirit, let us also, separate thing, keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying another. Paul seems to be separating two things here. That is, that you can be born again by the Spirit, have the Spirit abiding in you in terms of His presence and your salvation, and walking in the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. It's not that God, if you're a believer, it's not that God's presence ever leaves you. Okay, can I just be clear on that? It's not that God's, you are sealed in the Holy Spirit. That doesn't go away. But have you guys ever experienced a lack of power when you needed it? Have you guys ever experienced, even as a believer, where you're like, man, I'm like trying to witness to this person right now, and I'm just like, it's, it's not there. Am I the only one? I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's crazy. Okay, there, there is a reality. Then look at another one. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So clearly there's a filling that can happen here, right? And Paul's talking to believers. So he's saying, hey, if you're a Christian, be filled with the Spirit. And, and I think he's talking about for ministry. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. He goes on to say, if you, you know, be filled with the Spirit so you can build up the body. So if Paul is asserting that one should be filled, if, if, a, if a Christian should desire to be filled with the Spirit, doesn't that imply that a believer could sometimes not be filled with the Spirit? Is that just kind of basic logic? Okay, so, so I, I believe, and by the way, the Greek there of be filled is actually be being filled. I, I, I believe that as Christians, we cannot be any more saved than we are. We can't be any more, we, we, we didn't earn our salvation. Salvation's a gift. But we can, at times, be a more clog-free conduit 
and a less clog-free conduit of the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? Uh, your arteries, you know, you can clog them. Uh, Jesus talked about this in John 15. He says, I'm the vine. I'm the power source. I'm ultimate reality. You're just a stick. And a stick only grows fruit if it's attached to the vine. But then he says, if a stick's not attached to the vine, it goes in the fire. If a stick is attached to the vine and it bears a little fruit, what does he do? He prunes it so it can grow more fruit, right? So, so I think as Christians, we can be filled with the Spirit's power to varying degrees, largely based on how much we're actually tuned into what he's doing and how much we're actually surrendered and submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm not saying that there are our, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, um, some of them, not all of them, some of them there's, believe that there's this thing called the second baptism. That, you know, you could be a Christian for 10 years and then all of a sudden you get the second baptism and you speak in tongues and all of a sudden everything's different. I don't really believe that. I think you get the Holy Spirit the second you're saved and then the Spirit of God can come on you multiple times through your life for, for particular things. And we can invite or we can quench the Spirit's presence in our lives in, in, in that way, uh, particularly for ministry. Am I losing you guys? Are you with me? We can disagree on this. Hey, Christians disagree about this kind of stuff. Isn't that great? And, and, and uh, one thing I love about Philippi is that we are really eclectic. And we got, we got people all over the place. And uh, we don't all have to agree on this. And you don't even have to agree with me on this. Um, but, I, but I do think this is right. Um, <laughs> just saying. Just saying. So, okay, Sam. So if I, can, if I should seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit as a believer, if I, if I should seek this power um, to, to come through me and me to, to do ministry... How do, how do I become a clog-free artery? How do I be filled? What do I do? Okay. Well, I, I am not so arrogant as to say, here's three steps. But, but I will say, here's some biblical precedents. Here's some biblical principles that I think will help tune you into what the Spirit of God is doing. The Spirit is not, again, it's not a tube to be squeezed, right? The Spirit is a person, and he's God. So he's already doing stuff. The question is, are you wanting to do what he's already doing? Are you, or are you just like, I'm going to do what I want to do, and maybe if I pray and beat my head up against the wall, the Spirit will come. You know, or maybe if I get excited enough or I believe enough, maybe the Spirit of God will do what I want him to do. Now, that's, that's word faith. That's nonsense. You don't command the Holy Spirit. You either get on board with the Spirit's program, which is to glorify Jesus and make disciples through all the earth, or you don't. Okay? So, so my, I kind of gave away my first point here. Uh, well, that's my second point, actually. Number one, write it down. How do we be filled with the Holy Spirit for ministry? Number one, talk about the right, write it down, talk about the right person. Talk about the right person. A lot of people um, in the West, they, they want this power. They want to be charismatic. They want to be anointed. They want to see God do things. And that's, that's good. But, but my, always, my, my main question is why? Why do you want that? Because in the West, we like power. We like power steering. We like power lawnmowers. We like power vacuums, power suit, power tie, power windows, power locks. We're all about power, right? We, we love power in our culture. Why? Because we're control freaks, right? We want everything our way. That's why we like Burger King, you know? Have it your way. Is that Burger King? Okay. It's not Carl's Jr. It's Burger King, right? We like power. We like control. And this is why I think in the West there's, there's a lot of people that have gotten more interested in the Holy Spirit. And I think some of them, it's because this idea of power is exciting. It's just like, great, man. So if I take this supplement and I get up at this time and I take an ice bath and I go to the uh, ice bath, that's a thing now, uh, and I go to the gym and then I read five books a day and then I, um, I stay off my phone for two hours and I have the Holy Spirit. I'm the total package. 
and I have total power. I'm just going to cruise through life, and my life's going to be good, and I'm going to have a good marriage, and I'm going to be a good parent, and I'm going to be effective in everything I do. That's Western American control freak thinking. That's what it is. If you want the Spirit of God to work powerfully in your life, make much of Jesus. Because that's what he's all about. And don't assume for a minute that the Holy Spirit can't work just as powerfully through your sickness as he can through your healing. God may glorify himself. The Spirit of God may manifest, manifest his power through your addiction or your weakness or your limitation or your fallenness. And he also may do it through your recovery and through your victory and through your breakthrough. But the Holy Spirit gets to decide. And at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. How do I know this? Well, because Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 26, he said, when the Spirit of God comes, he's gonna be all about me. That's what the Spirit is. That's what the Spirit does. He's all about Jesus. So I get really nervous when I, I go to some event and it's like everyone's getting real worked up and it's like power, power, power. We want the power of Spirit, power, power, power. And I'm like, where is the gospel? Where is Jesus? All I hear is power, and the room just happens to be nice and dark, and there's a fog machine, and great. That's cool. Where is Jesus? Not against fog machines. We got one over there. It's not ours. <laughs> one of these days, we might fire it up, you know. <laughs> Where is Jesus? Is he central? You want the power? Get the person, the person of Jesus. It's important. What did, Jesus, what did Peter do right after the Spirit fell at Pentecost? He preached about Jesus, and that's why people got saved because they heard the gospel, and the gospel is the power to transform lives. And the Spirit is about revealing Jesus. The second way, let me back up. I have had moments as a pastor where, and this really isn't pastor-specific, just human, Christian-specific, I've had moments where like, I saw an opportunity to minister, and I was terrified, and I didn't know what to say, and I felt immediately like, I don't even know. I mean, even as a pastor, I like, didn't know what to say. Moments where, where I saw an opportunity to speak the gospel and I was just petrified. And the craziest thing happens when you open your mouth and you start speaking the name of Christ and you start declaring the gospel realities, the Spirit of God is like, but He doesn't always come before you start speaking, right? Sometimes you just got to open your mouth. You got to open your mouth because the Spirit will show up when Jesus is put on display. Because the whole point of the universe is the glory of Christ. Okay. Number two, take the right posture. Take the right posture. Now, I've said this before, but as Western evangelicals, we're kind of allergic to work right now. Uh, I think it's because we're all afraid we're going to become flaming legalists and uh, Pharisees. And so we're like, it's grace, grace, grace. Yeah, that's true. And work is a grace. Okay. Sanctification is a grace. Maturation is a grace. So, so here's the thing. You can work at being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't look like sitting in a dark room with your legs crossed doing yoga. Okay, uh, You can work at being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it, it means obedience. It means surrender. It means I'm going to actually discipline my life in such a way that I'm postured so that the Spirit of God can work through me. It's that simple. Uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Uh, we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. We're co-witnesses with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? Whom God has given to those who obey him. Sam, that's works. No, it's just what the Bible says. It doesn't say you're saved if, if, if you obey him. It says you, you, you'll, be, you'll be given the Holy Spirit if you obey him. Ephesians 4, 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That means you can live in such a way that is actually hindering the Spirit of God from working in and through your life. You can. 
John chapter 14, Jesus says, I love this, man. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So, so there's a connection between our obedience, between our discipline, between our choice to say, God, I'm gonna say yes in these areas of my life and our effectiveness in ministry. There just are. There just are. What are some ways that you can be a clogged artery? Well, you, you can have unconfessed sin in your life. You can have things in your life that you have not let the gospel reach, dark corners that you're not letting the grace of God shine into and give you the confidence that you have actually been forgiven enough to bring that into the light. And that can hinder and limit your confidence in the gospel for others. You can't preach the gospel to someone if you aren't believing it for yourself. You can hinder the Holy Spirit when you fail to believe the gospel for yourself. You can hinder the Holy Spirit when you are backbiting and gossiping, when you're um, harboring unforgiveness, walking in drunkenness or slothfulness or self-centeredness. There's a million ways that we can hinder the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul, in his list, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. What's the obvious implication? You're getting hammered every night. You're not going to be a very effective vessel. For the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you are living according to the economy of this age rather than the next one. You're not living into God's work and God's will. You're completely off to the side. Now, again, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about effectiveness. The key word to disciples is discipline. Okay? We need to be disciplined. Number three, here's a, a third way you can be filled with the Spirit. Transform your neural pathways. Transform your neural pathways. Romans 12, 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Listen, which is your spiritual worship? You know, a lot of people are confused about what spiritual is. What does it mean to be spiritual? Does that mean that I just think about floating things all the time? Does that mean that I just go, like, like Johnny Depp in, in Pirates of the Caribbean? Oh, spiritual, bro. You can find a lot of that in Grant's past, dude. Tell you where the pot shops are. Okay, spiritual is not floatiness. Spiritual is not, man, I'm just tuned into the metaphysical realm, man. I'm tuned into whatever God's doing out there, man. And like, no. Spiritual, according to Paul, is wholly surrendered to what God is doing in all areas of your life, physical and non-physical. Spiritual means my body is God's. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying transform your life so that you are a living sacrifice, so that you're walking in such a way that, that, that your life is wholly given over to him. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So if we want to be filled with the Spirit, what we need to do is we need to think God's thoughts until we start to think God's thoughts. How do we think God's thoughts? Well, we can read his word, first of all, right? Know God's heart, know God's mind, and then you're in step with his will. Fourth point, just write it down real quick, and then i got to move on. Train your peripherals. And what I mean by that is, is not to say that the Spirit of God, you know, a lot of people think the Spirit of God is the unorganized part of God. Have you ever noticed that? Like, people blame the Holy Spirit for being always, like, ad-lib all the time. Like, that sermon was really spiritual. Like, did you even prepare? Like, like the spiritual, like spiritual things are when you don't prepare. The Spirit's all about preparing, actually. 
Salvation was prepared before the foundations of the earth, okay? So, but what I mean by that is, I mean, we should be looking in the peripherals for what God might be doing outside of what we would assume he would want to do. And I think to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to go, Lord, are you doing something outside of what I might expect here? So that's all I mean by that point. Now, let me just end here with some guardrails. And I'm going to try not to be snarky in this section because it's just easy to be snarky, and I don't want to be. Um, you should be discerning in how you think about the power of the Spirit. And I think there's a lot of error on both sides of the aisle when we talk about the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit. So I just want to give you two ditches that I, I, I don't want you to drive into them. And at Philippi, we're, we're, we're not going to go, here's with a super fine point, here's exactly what it looks like to walk in the power of the Spirit. We're not going to do that because I don't think the Scripture allows that. But we're also going to try to stay up on the road and stay out of the ditches. So like, there's two ditches we can drive into, and Christians do it all the time when it comes to this subject. I just want to give them to you so that we can try to just stay up on the road. The first ditch is this. You can write it down. You can under-realize the power of the Spirit. You can under-realize the power of the Spirit. You know, we swim in culture. We swim downstream from modernity. You know what modernity is? It's, it's this kind of, this, this, this mood, this cultural mood that really reigned for a long time where, like, if something isn't empirically, scientifically proven, I don't believe it. You know, and we're coming out of that. I think, like, Gen Z, they're pretty spiritual. and, and so, but, but a lot of, like, the, the baby boomer generation, even Gen X, it's like, hey, man, science. Show me Science. Science, 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 right? And there's just, no, there's just no room for supernatural things. And I think if we're not careful, Christians can kind of absorb some of that mood of modernity that's just sort of skeptical of anything supernatural. I don't want to go there. Guys, this thing's pretty supernatural. Have you noticed it? There's like a giant boat floating on water. There's like a, a sea that's parted in half. There's like, you know, Jesus raising from the dead. There's, I mean, there's a lot of supernatural stuff in here. But, but a lot of times we can be so skeptical of anything supernatural. Now, I don't want to go there. I don't want to fall into the ditch of, of being so sort of like theologically a theist and practically an atheist. Do you ever feel like that? Like someone's sick and I'm like, should I pray for him? I'm like, well, I'll just like give him some NyQuil. You know, I catch myself doing it like I'm like I'm a practical atheist. Hey man, like you're you're sick. Yeah, like can I bring you something? You know, sure. Can you pray for me? I had a, I had a friend up in um, Salem area, Portland area, and he was he was dying of cancer, and he was a um, what's called a cessationist. So that you know he, he doesn't believe that the the gift of healing necessarily still exists um, today, and um, we'll talk about that next week. But he was he was dying of cancer. And he said, you know, I, I, I just am sick of talking to all my conservative friends because I call them and, and they just want to tell me about, you know, um, my suffering. And, and that's fine. And he's like, and I believe that. But he's like, I just want someone to pray for me. I just want someone to pray that I'll be healed. So he's like, so I've been calling my Pentecostal friends because <laughs> they'll pray that I'll be healed. So I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be so afraid of this idea that God, you know, supernaturally can do things that we don't pray big prayers and ask God for big things. Because God is a big God and he can do big things. I don't want to function like an atheist. And you know, two things happen when we, when we under-realize the power of the Spirit. One is, is we under-appreciate, meaning we take credit for what the Spirit does. And I think this is a danger that can happen. If, if we under-emphasize the Spirit's work, we can start to go, man, like, that was kind of cool. Like, I, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I had insight into that. I'm glad God gave me wisdom. Or maybe... We should give the credit to the Holy Spirit and go, maybe God gave you wisdom into that. Maybe God gave you this gift. Maybe God gave you that ability, right? I don't want to be guilty of taking credit of what belongs to the Holy Spirit. The other thing that can happen in this ditch is the underutilization of the Spirit. 
We don't think there's power available. We don't think we can ask for this reality of, of God's power like wind, his breath coming into a moment and giving us what we need. And I don't want to fall into that ditch. I think there, there are reasons we don't see as many miracles in the West, at least credible ones. There's always a lot of dark rooms that things happen in those dark rooms, but no one can ever prove it. Um, I think there's a reason we don't see as many miracles as we did in the book of Acts. One of those reasons is I don't think we've put ourselves in positions where we really need the Spirit of God like they did in the book of Acts, and that's on us, right? We've, we've created very manicured and comfortable environments, and then we say, all right, Holy Spirit, fall. Holy Spirit's like, why don't you go do something that you can't do on your own, and then I'll, I'll show up. I mean, I'm talking like Stephen in the book of Acts, getting ripped out of his house in his pajamas, about ready to get stoned by the Pharisees, and he immaculately and dynamically preached the gospel. I mean, I hear about miraculous things all the time, and you know, a lot of times it's, it's on the mission field. A lot of times it's in these, these crazy, terrifying, scary, uncomfortable places where people are absolutely tapped out on their own limitations, and the Holy Spirit has to show up. Not like, let's get the room really dark and have a really good sound system and really good lighting everything. Then the spirit will fall. I don't know what that is. Maybe. Maybe. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to be snarky. Let me also say, just because you've seen something wrongly used doesn't mean it doesn't exist and it doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And I think a lot of people in the church are skeptical of certain things, of supernatural things, because they've seen it abused. They've seen, uh, you know, people say, well, thus saith the Lord, and then they do all kinds of immorality. Okay, that's sin. Let's call it. Let's, that's sin. It's brokenness. There's a lot of people in this world that will not get married because they had a bad relationship. Don't throw out the institution of marriage. Don't throw out sexuality because you were abused, right? Redeem it. This is a misuse of something God made. So I'm not willing to go as far as saying, oh, I don't think these things are real just because I've seen people misuse them and abuse them. We need, we need to be right in our thinking. So the, the first ditch is we can under-realize it. The second ditch, though, on the other side, let's flip the, turn out, flip, flip the coin over. The other ditch is that we can over-realize it. We can over-realize it. And by this, I don't mean we can over-realize the power of God. What I mean is that we can over-realize the timing of when God is going to release all power, and manifest full on heaven. You know what I mean? There's this real big mistake out in the Western church right now. It's called this over-realized eschatology. It's, it's just where like God's will is to heal every time and power is available every time and, and, and really if the only thing limiting all that is our faith and if we just have enough faith, God will release healing every time. So, so it's not about praying for someone and asking God. It's about praying in faith and releasing healing from heaven. I, that's wrong. It's wrong. The reason it's wrong is because it's an, you're over-realizing the next stage into this age. And to the detriment of the fact that God sometimes wants to use suffering and wants to use weakness to say God's will is always more and power and raises and bonuses and health and wealth and prosperity is to say, well, then God has no reason to allow any suffering in this world for this particular time. But God's not just interested in your comfort. He's interested in your maturity and he's interested in, your, in his glory and doing things through you. So we ask God for healing, but we don't command healing. We don't say God's will is to heal every time. Absolutely not. God's plan, or to assume that God's plan is to always show power, is to assume God's plan is to never use weakness. Anyone ever seen God use weakness in their life? Was that lack of faith? Did you just not name it and claim it? Bab it and glab it? Blab it and grab it? 
Is that what that was? Like, oh, I should have spoke faith and I wouldn't have been. No. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He didn't speak that out of existence, right? Rebuke that stuff. It's nonsense. At the same time, God heals. And there's power available. There's supernatural realities here. God's, listen, God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Our weakness is not in the way of God's power. And to say that God's will is always to heal is to say my weakness is just something to get out of the way. But rather, talk to Johnny Erickson Tata, right? Like, like talk to someone who has seen God's power come through their weakness and you realize that, that God's doing a particular thing in this age and we ought not to over-realize the things that he will at one, at one point, all sickness and all death, and all, it's all going to go away. New bodies, new earth, all that. But we're not there yet. We're in the already not yet. We're in the middle place, the in-between. So don't underrealize it. Don't overrealize it. And be careful not to make the power of God the, the end rather than the means. And we can do that. And when you do that, when you go, it's all about the power and experience and manifestation, when you do that, you start to create an environment where you start to synthesize these things. Have you noticed that? Where you start, where you start to say, well, I, I guess to be spiritual in this church, I gotta speak in tongues and I gotta prophesy and I gotta, like, I gotta have visions so like, I better try really hard. I mean, I've been in environments where people have tried to push me over because they wanted me to be slain in the spirit. It's like, stop that. You're, you're forcing something. This is, this is a supernatural thing. I'm not saying God slays people. I don't know. He does in other ways. Um, yeah, Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, uh, I, I'm just saying, like, like, don't synthesize it. Don't say, well, because, because I want this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fake it. We want the real thing. And I think, I, I think we're interested in the real fruit of the Holy Spirit. If we're not careful, if we make too much of God's power, we start to create a hierarchy, right? Where we go, well, this person's been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, this person speaks in tongues. It's exactly what Paul was, was, was condemning in Corinth. We'll look at that next week. He said, don't think about it that way. There's no hierarchy, upper echelon of more spiritual, less spiritual. Don't think that way. It's not the way we should think. All right, did I make everybody mad? Anybody? I tried to make everyone mad so that if you guys, you know, just like. Here's what I think. Here's what I know. God gave us dynamic power in the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus, to preach the gospel, not just to the lost, but to the saved as well. And you have a very important, we'll talk about this more next week, you have a very important role to play in the body of Christ. There's only one you. There's a diversity in the body that you are part of and the spirit wants to animate and populate and breathe life into the body through your spiritual gifts, through the way God has designed you. And we need to tune into that. And that's our hope and that's our prayer, I think, as a church, is that we would be wise that we would be cautious, that we would be excited and expectant and believe that God can do great things. Amen? Why don't you guys stand with me?